0: Shalom and welcome to the Isha Fleischer Show, broadcasting live from Route 60. That's right, Route 60, beautiful road, the ridge road of Judea and Samaria that crosses from uh, Gush where we live, and keeps going north towards Bethlehem. We're right next to Bethlehem right now. And into Yerushalayim, Yerakodesh, the holy city, Jerusalem. From there to Bethel, uh, where we live for many years, and uh, up to Shiloh, where we're going today for a bar mitzvah of our good friends Alex and Sippy. And their son, Hanan Dovber, and we're very excited. And so instead of recording uh, like we do usually in our living room, I'm joined by the one and only Malka Fleischer for a little bit of road radio. Road trip! Road trip! And we are heading north, Malka. Tumultuous time in Israel. Beautiful weather, though, outside today. And also the (laughs) Shkedi Yaporachat, which means that the... uh, which means that the almond tree is blossoming. There's these white blossoms. And then within a few days, they turn into a kind of snow because because the blossoms come off the trees and they kind of fly around these, these beautiful little leaves. Uh, also, allergies are a little bit blossoming for those who feel it. Baruch Hashem. Uh, that means that the land is alive. That's one of the great symbols uh, of the, uh, the Geulah, of the redemption, is when allergic people start to sneeze in the land of Israel, right? which means that the land is alive. Baruch Hashem. Uh, and Malka thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Yes, thank you. It's uh, it's exciting to be going to the the site of the Tabernacle, which is sort of like the first capital of Israel before the capital became Jerusalem. Um, and it is uh, a gorgeous day. I'm looking forward to that almond tree snow because we're not getting any other kind of snow, it looks like. It's been unseasonably warm and unseasonably dry this year. But uh, Baruch Hashem. Listen, we, we live in, in wild times, so I guess the weather is just reflecting the... Uh, the unusualness of our time. Um, that's a nice way of
0: saying it. Definitely, uh, it's tumultuous out, the, out there. Um, we've had a, quite a week. More murders took place. Two brothers uh, were were gunned down in Hawara in the town of Hawara which is uh, on the way to Shechem to Shechem to so-called Nablus. Um, maybe we'll be going there later on today uh, to to pay our condolences to to a shivakal. In that house, so we have a kind of maybe a mixed day today of both uh, joy of the continuing story of the Jewish people and also the effort to destroy the Jewish people, which is um, which is also part of the story of the Jewish people. Sadly, Uh, following that that murder, a heinous kind of murder in a in on this very road that we're on, uh, that uh, this road goes through the town of Chawara, the mayor of uh, the Shemron Regional Council, that that that, that road where that where is. Has called for a long time to make a road to bypass uh, the town of Hawara, which, which is the, like you're kind of forced to drive through. Uh, and there was, you know, th- th- this horrible, uh, horrific attack, this criminal act. Uh, afterwards, uh, nearby folks from the nearby area uh, came down into the town of Hawara and uh, did uh, vigilante, what's the word, uh, arson, to the place. They lit. Uh, a kind of, um, n- not a depot, what do you call it, like a car dump, uh, and they lit like 50 cars on fire, a, f- a few buildings on fire, smashed some stuff. There was a reported death, but then that was taken away. That was looked like it was fake news. And then there's been a huge aftermath. Fake news? He didn't die? There, there's been no um, no clarity on whether somebody was killed in those incidences or not, and and as you could see, it's not been... It has not been uh, reported in any major way. And so I don't know what the what the facts are. I simply don't know. Uh, then there's been all the post issues around that, that, that vigilante arson. There's a lot of Israelis who are like, you know, there's anger in the streets. People are being murdered. There's been some, somebody, I, I read somewhere 14 murders in the last month. Uh, Jewish blood is flowing. And uh, there's been no deterrence. Not enough deterrence, clearly. And so there's a place for that, you know, anger to spill out. And then there's, of course, the counter voice, which says, what, you know, how could Jews do this? Uh, This is not our way. uh, And these people are no different than the terrorists and that kind of language. And uh, you and I have been trying to hash out uh, that kind of uh, discourse also on Twitter, where it's been very, um, you know, hotly debated um, in many ways. You know, it comes down to are you a a person who's been a victim of these things and and feel the pain uh, that happens regularly and see the terrorism that is inflicted upon us as a societal terrorism uh, and not just individual terrorism and therefore there's societal retribution or just plain old anger uh, that that at least has makes human sense? Or do you believe That uh, you know only the IDF can administer justice only to the specific people who did the crime, Um, and that you know uh, vigilantism is anti, you know anti-state, and and the majority of politicians have basically even the ones that are on the right wing say this is not uh, we should not be encouraging vigilantism we should not be encouraging vigilantism certainly not. but but at the same time, there's an understanding of 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 the uh, incredible tension that we have underneath. Um, I think I just saw I think that's Minister Bangngveer just passing us right now uh, on the road because or minister or Minister uh, Smutrich, both coming from the South Hebron Hills area and traveling this way and that's that's what their, their cars look like. In any case, uh, you know, a very contentious point, and it also belies how you see the current situation and how you see uh you know, like here's, here's like a tension point. Do you think that showing that kind of you know, unbridled anger, which is what this vigilanteism is because of a sense that the government is not doing enough, do you see that as being helpful or hurtful to the cause? Not just is it just or unjust, Is it helpful or hurtful? For example, if you think that the Arabs, the Palestinians need to know that Jewish people will not stand silently by and let the blood flow, uh, then you think that maybe there's a place for it. But if you think, no, this will bring international accusation and ire, and that uh, we should, uh, you, you know, we, that's the war that we're fighting, and so that when you do acts like this, it only encourages the hate against us, and, you know, hate on, uh, on Instagram and Facebook, all that kind of stuff and accusations, then you think a different thing. It, it really depends. I'm guessing that most of the, you know, folks in Har Bracha and in Yitzhar, the places around uh, Hawara, and uh, and, and, uh, and close to Shechem well they're not so much an Anglo Instagram they're very much driving through those towns and face almost daily rock throwing there okay so their reaction is good we gotta show them that we mean business that we're we're tough but if you're if you are a pro-Israel activist on social media uh, but you live in Tel Aviv, then you're the, the enemy that you face is more the international iron accusation. And so therefore you're like, this is incredibly unhelpful. And wow, you know, like, okay, you know, people have been killed. The army will take care of it, but we can't make mistakes that will besmirch our name internationally. So that's one of the fault lines, one of the fault lines uh, on this issue. What do you think, Malka?
1: <coughs> Excuse me. Well, um, I had the opportunity... To speak to a group of students from the Hartman Institute, um, it's a it's a speaking engagement I go to every year, and I really really enjoy it. It is a left wing organization, make no uh, mistake, but it is not a radical left wing organization. It's just a left wing organization.
0: Zionist left
1: wing. Right. So they so they really listen respectfully. They ask a lot of good questions, and I always get the sense that they're listening actively. So I always really enjoy speaking with them, and I like to see what their what their concerns are. So interestingly, I really thought that the first question they would ask me, because this is their, was their, like, meet a settler day, I thought the first thing that they would ask me was about Hawara. It was not. But ultimately, they did ask about it. They asked me how I felt. And I told them the truth, which is that I feel conflicted. I feel conflicted about it. Um, I told them that on the one hand... Um, if innocent people are, are hurt, that's not good. No one wants innocent people, and it's not certainly not the Jewish way to harm innocent people. Um, and if innocent people were harmed, that's not right. On the other hand, if they're not innocent people, or if people were harmed who are harming us, um, it's I, it's kind of unfortunate that. average joes from israel have to get out into the street and try to fight for their own uh, safety but if they feel that they're not being protected and this is the only way to protect from another event like this happening god forbid then i can understand it um i also uh you know but the but the big problem that they had Ishai, was there for them it's like violence is violence And all, not all violence is equal, but they could say, well, you know, I told them, you know, if you're, if you, if you bury two beautiful children from your region, and you're not enraged by that, and you don't snap by that, like, that's not normal. You know what I mean? Like, you, we should be enraged by, by this uh, reality. And And these people who went to Hawara, they snapped. They experienced this horrific um, destruction of a family, this loss of life, and this this threat really upon themselves too, because every person, when you read this on the news, they think to themselves, this could happen to me. And they snapped. So then they asked me, well, what about Palestinians, right? What about Palestinians who they lose a, a child in a whatever incident, And they snap. So isn't it all the same? Well, and and that's why it's
0: so important to distinguish, Malka. Uh, uh, The answer to that is actually, um, I don't know if it's simple, but it's, it's right in front, which is there's a societal jihadism that's being taught in the schools, taught in the school books. Seen on Facebook, in the in the sermons of, of the of the mosques, it's it's on their television. It is a jihadism to destroy Israel. It's part of a great religious um, uh, effort, um, and to to equate that to a a, a, an, a Jew who's angry at that murder is 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 the height of misunderstanding. The it's an asymmetrical war. And not, not understanding that it's an asymmetrical war. We don't have in our side, uh, you know, a whole system taught to eradicate Palestinian people and Palestinianism. Although we do have we do have a fight against the claim that they have on our land. That's true, but they have they, they literally teach. They they te- it's a there's like a death cult there, uh, and they are. Teaching the self-sacrifice that it needs in order to kill a Jew. How do you do it? There's a video this week that was released by Hamas. Exactly how to do a drive-by shooting. Very instructive, and how to make sure that you kill your target and keep going and leave safely. Uh, so we don't we don't have anything like that. This was uh, this was a reaction, um, and so you can't compare that. On top of which, it's also really it comes down to the claims. It comes down to the claims. Do you think that we have an equal claim or not? If you think that somebody here is a um uh, a land thief and now is also on top of that claiming uh, calling to eradicate you and it's basically an invader in your land that's one thing but if you think that we both have an equal claim that's another thing um so you know as, as I'm as I'm talking with you about this I see that there are so many fault lines on which you can uh you can understand the hawara story you know do you understand that? Uh, do you believe or not believe that collective punishment is correct? That that relies on. Do you believe that there's a societal effort against us in, in the Arab jihadist society? Not that. And, and I'm trying to separate out the many Arabs who are not jihadists. But do you believe that in general there is a, a jihadist movement? Uh, do you believe that uh, you know Jewish rage is is a good thing or a bad thing? Um, it also goes back to texts. How do you understand certain texts? Do you understand, for example, the Purim story? Uh, do you understand uh, that the Jews had to stand up and fight for themselves as a good thing, or should the government, the Persian government, have taken care of business over there? Um, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many fault lines, but I think the simple answer is you, can, you should not make the mistake of equating uh, the Palestinian narrative with the Jewish narrative and make them as two equal narratives especially if, you're a com- if you believe that you're a combatant on one side and we have a lot of friends who like, fight anti-Semitism online but when it comes to these moments they're just like look, there's a, you know, the, the Palestinian narrative is just as equal and the only thing that we don't like is when they you know, call to violence but when they claim that this is their land that is also an equal thing well, they're victims also uh, of, of, uh, uh, of a narrative that is, is anti-Israel albeit softer but at the end gets those kind of people Anyway, Malka, it's um, it's a very you know it's a very pregnant moment that we have here, and it's a very very adar moment. It's a very pura moment. You know, do you do you cry like Mordechai? You know, when Jews are threatened, do you flip out? Uh, Esther tried to calm him down, right? But uh, you know, he refused to be calmed down, and he and he initiated a whole thing. Which led to her getting the court involved, but the court was like, "Yeah, but you Jews got to stand up and lead and do it. You guys have to fight the anti-Semites. I can't do it for you." Uh, so that's those are those are some of the fault lines And Malka, What's so interesting is that here we are, you and I, driving towards that very place, tor- towards uh, uh, towards the scene of the crime, scene of the act, scene of the crimes, scene of the actions, or scene of the uh, the realities of the Middle East.
1: I just want to say. In addition to what you're saying, that I think it's very important now in the month of Adar and you, you raised up uh, Purim as, as a, a little bit of context for what's going on today. I want to say that I think everybody should spend a little bit of extra energy now, really always, but right now. Making sure that the issues which divide us, because there's a lot of issues right now. We have, obviously, the judicial reform. It's very hot. Some people feel very strongly one way. Some people feel very strongly the other way. And they really feel very strongly, meaning to say they're very concerned on either side in in real life. And uh, you have, you know, this government which wants to push forward aggressively. Some people have a problem with aggression in general for Jews. Jews being aggressive at all. They're very uncomfortable with that idea. They're uncomfortable with changing the status quo in Israel at all because we're we're, of course, the first thing everyone is concerned about is that if you mess with if you if you poke the snake, that it will bite, right? People are very scared of of the terrorism rising up as a result of uh, of uh, messing with it, basically. And uh, I just want to say that I think that people should really, really focus right now on not allowing these issues to divide us. Mm. It's it's very legitimate to look at the person across from you and go, golly, that person like so doesn't get it right on either side. You could be listening to this show right now and be going, Malka does not get it like she I don't even know where she gets her ideas from. She is wrong. Okay, I accept and I accept that you can feel however you want about me but in the end of the day we have to remember that we are in this together as a Jewish people and I recognize that each other's decisions can really impact you, right? the decisions that this government makes can really impact the people who don't like this government and previous governments that I really didn't like have had very serious impacts on my life and on the lives of other people so I, I realize that it's not just a lot of talk, it's really real At the same time, we have to understand that this is just another strategy of the haters. You bring up the the hard issues and let the Jews attack each other. And I've seen this, by the way, on social media, that that the real, real haters are talking about it. They're talking about that the Jews are divided right now. This is very bad, okay? So you have to find a way, just like in a family, because this is a family, you have to find a way to disagree even very extremely much while maintaining that we are not going to be cutting each other out or cutting each other off we have to stay together incidentally as a religious person I will add on that I think that the creator of the heavens and the earth wants that like I'm not even not just aside from strategy now I think Hashem does not want us to fall apart over these issues but wants us to come together over these issues Um, even as we disagree and even as some people are not going to be happy with with different uh, decisions and outcomes
0: Uh, I just saw Ari Abramowitz uh, to uh, my left and now behind me blowing past him of course Uh, I'm just joking, I'm just saying that uh, my buddy Ari uh, and one of the founders of the uh, Land of Israel Network which this uh, show is on so uh, thank you very much Ari and Jeremy and we're going together to our good friend Alex Trayman's Bar Mitzvah, that's really great um, uh, I agree with your points very much and I wanted to just say to you Malka that not only did I agree with your points and think they were correct but wanted to point out that they were very very Purim what you're saying is very very Purim um, um, the, the Jews are accused by Haman, Haman as being divided He's like, they are, I'm Mephuzar Mephura. Wow, you're so right. And and then, and the answer to that is when Mordechai tells, when Esther tells Mordechai, Lech knoset Go gather all the Jews. Bring them together under this one umbrella and come back to Jewish unity. And that's one of the real themes uh, of the Megillah, Megillat Esther, which we're going to be reading uh, next week, really before the next show. Um, so really, what you, I don't know if you even meant it, but really that is an incredible... You know, under undertone, under uh, what's it called? Uh, uh, a theme that that uh, not undertone, but um, the, the, the underlying theme that is happening uh, inside Megillat which is the, diff- the 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 tension between separated and, and 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 detached and and um, Jews that are separated from one another and have issues with one another, um, as opposed to Jews who come together, and I think that our enemies are strong. And I can show it to you biblically in many places when we are separated, when we are detached from one another. And so I agree with you. Let's have intellectual arguments. Let's talk about what's good and bad. But let's be careful to, uh, to keep it together right at this time. This is obviously a time that our enemies think that we're, we're divided and we have to show that we're united. This government, by the way, is trying now to show a more united front. Uh, moreover, um, I saw um, Hassan Nasrallah the Secretary General of the terrorist organization Hezbollah. And what did he say? Uh, He said, look, the the Jews are all divided. Their country is about to fall apart. Meanwhile, while he was saying that, right? Meanwhile, while he was saying that, uh, he's living in a bunker and his country was literally above him, uh, falling apart, Lebanon. And so that was, you know, that that was one of those uh, things where he was projecting. And yet we have to project back... um, uh, I, I think an image of, of unity and strength and not really back to them but, but back to each other so I agree with you Malka I think it's a very deep truth that you, that you, that you hit on today and thank you also for bringing up the you know a connect, helping us connect it to uh, Megillah Tastair and this holiday of Purim that's coming up I uh, just want to say one thing about Purim you know what I'll save it for the end I'll save uh, Purim for just a few minutes uh, at the end of the show we have a great show uh, lined up we have an amazing interview with Tehila Gimpel uh, who's, a, who's a lawyer and a very uh, astute uh, observer and understander of the uh, legal issues of the land of Israel. And she gives us a rundown on the issues, an historical rundown also, on the issues of judicial reform here in Israel. We then have Rabbi Kenny Cohen talk about uh, Jewish uh, dating of history. I don't mean dating of guys and gals. I mean dating of Jewish history. Uh, but before that, we have uh, our very own Ben Bresky who's going to give us a rundown of, of Purim miracles throughout history, important Purims that were celebrated in different parts of the world that were miraculous. And before we get to that, I just want to say thank you to the sponsors of the show, to JNS.org, great uh, news site, and JewishPress.com, uh, who put out our show every single week and put out great emails, uh, and also to Israel365.com, uh, their campaigns, and also their Israel Bible, theisraelbible.com, which they put out, and if you put on coupon code Yishai, you will have an excellent, excellent product at your fingertips. I mean, really, God's word beautifully put out with beautiful Hebrew, beautiful fonts, beautiful everything. And so, uh, that's that's uh, the Israel Bible. So if you have, you know, good news. Uh, on JNS and, and JewishPress.com and you have a good Bible in your house, you're pretty much set with proper, healthy information those things will help you understand uh, the, one will understand, help you understand the other. Uh, of course it's very hard to read good information when you're hungry and so therefore we have a, a, great, uh, a great sponsor of the show which is um, Prohibition Pickle we had some uh, last week or two weeks ago Prohibition Pickle will get your bile What's it called? The gut bile? What's it called, Malka? Gut Biome, not bile. Oh, god, Sorry. Got biome. That's why I probably got sick because I didn't know the difference. Uh, good good biome, but but not only tasty, not only healthy, but also holy. Holy biome. That's what I am selling you today, okay? Prohibitionpickle.co.il. Thank you very much. And there's also a coupon code there, eShy. Uh, and then also uh, our good friends at RetroWatchGuy.com, selling amazing classic watches uh, and I want to tell you that last week I promoted a, cer- a certain watch that I thought was beautiful. Boom, got sold. Uh, to somebody That's so exciting. To That's right. Somebody listening to the show really liked it a lot. So uh, very good, uh, very successful at uh, RetroWatchGuy.com. And I highly recommend that people uh, check out their uh, website. And they do great social media and have beautiful watches. Anybody else, Malka, that we're sponsoring? Of course. Of course. Come to the land of Israel. You got to go to the Temple Mount. And you're going to go to Temple Mount. Maybe you don't know what you're doing exactly. Maybe you need a little help. So go to highonthehard.com. MJ and Rabbi Levy will take you up. We'll tour you around. We'll bring you in holiness to the place of holiness. And you will be touched for the rest of your life with what I call spiritual suntan. And you will never be the same again. You will have you know, gone way, way past uh, exile and into the realm of redemption. So that's highonthehard.com. And when you're done with that, you got to visit the begin the founders of it all, the mamas and the papas in Hebron. That's the Jewish community of Hebron where I have the honor of serving as spokesman. Check out hebronfund.org to strengthen the Jewish community of Hebron and come on our amazing tours by the one and only Rabbi Simcha Hachbaum. Check out uh, Dan Rosenstein's great work at hebronfund.org and we keep making the place more beautiful and stronger for the mamas and papas and for Jewish history and heritage. Uh, finally, Maka, I want to thank you very much for joining me. Come back uh, and join me again at the end of the show. In the meantime, let's go to Ben Bresky with great uh, history moments from Jewish history about Purim. And then we're going to go immediately to to Tehillah Gimpel. And then we're going to go to Rabbi uh, Kenny Cohen. And then we'll be right back with a few more last words. Mak, thanks so much. Thank you so much. Shabbat Shalom.
2: This is a moment in Jewish history. Throughout Jewish history, there have been many mini Purim holidays celebrated by communities seeking to honor a significant event. The Book of Esther describes a miraculous victory over Haman, who sought to wipe out the Jewish community. In a twist of fate, he was hung on the very gallows he had erected to execute Mordecai, the leader of the Jewish community of Persia. This theme has been taken up by Jewish communities in Israel and the Diaspora to mark their own Purim-style miracles. These special mini-Purims are celebrated with the recitation of special prayers and a festive meal, and sometimes a fast on the preceding day, similar to regular Purim. The following is a brief list of notable Purim incidents in days of yore. Window Purim, or Purim Taka took place during the Ottoman era in Hebron when a pasha, a Turkish ruler, demanded a large sum of money or he would decimate the Jewish community of Hebron. The Jews of Hebron fasted and prayed and dropped a special note they had written into a window of the building housing the ancient cave of the patriarchs and matriarchs, the tomb of Machpelah. The next morning, A Jewish man found a bag on a windowsill with the exact amount of money the Pasha had demanded. That night, the Pasha dreamed that the biblical patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob came to him and warned him not to disturb the Jewish community. The next morning, when the Jewish community presented him with the ransom sum, he gave it back to them and rescinded his decree. That day was marked as window Purim in Hebron from then on. In 1614, the head of the Frankfurt-Germany Bakers Guild, Vincent Fettmilch, demanded less taxes and less Jews in his city. After he seized control of the town council, the emperor called for order to be restored. In retaliation, a mob attacked the Judengast, or Jewish Ghetto. Two Jews and one Christian were killed when Jewish residents took up arms to defend their homes and families. They were outnumbered by the mob. Their homes were looted and destroyed and the community was expelled. But the Fetmilch rebellion was eventually put down by the authorities and its leader hung in the town square. The Jews were led back into the town the next day during the month of Adar, the same month the regular Purim holiday takes place. A special scroll called Migilat Vins was written and read every year to celebrate the occasion. The Jews of Tripoli in today's nation of Libya celebrated Purim Burgul every year on the 29th of Tevet, a rebellion against Ali Pasha Karamanli led the Ottoman rulers to install Ali Burgo as the city's new ruler in 1793 and imposed heavy taxes upon the populace, particularly the Jewish community. Those accused of supporting the previous city's rulers were put to death, including the son of Rabbi Avraham Kaufman, the respected community leader. Rachamim Barda, a member of the Jewish community, eventually negotiated an agreement with the Karamanli family and their supporters, and together they drove out the oppressive Burgul. Rabbi Calfon composed a special prayer in commemoration of the ordeal. The Jews of Saragasa, the capital of medieval Spain's Aragon region, used to honor the king by dancing with their elaborately embroidered Torah cases during royal processions. In Sephardic communities, the Torah was kept in a rounded cylindrical box. Out of respect for the Holy Text, the Jewish community would carry the empty Torah cases to the parades. But a wicked advisor to the king named Marcus plotted to do away with the Jewish community by telling the king that this was a great insult. He advised the king that upon the next procession he should check each Torah case to see whether or not they were empty, and if so, then suffering would befall the Jews. But that night the caretaker of one of the synagogues dreamed that a wise old man instructed him not to remove the Torah scrolls. Each caretaker of each of Saragossa's synagogues had the same dream. The next day, when the king demanded the Torah cases be opened, he saw that they were in fact not empty. The king ordered Marcus to be executed. For generations, Spanish Jewry celebrated Purim Saragossa even after the Spanish Inquisition. This has been a moment in Jewish history. My name is Ben Bresky. Thank you to yeshai Fleischer. Thank you to all the listeners. And Shalom.
0: All right, folks, still at the Bar Mitzvah of the Altshuler family here in beautiful remote Israel. It's cold. It's nighttime. It's Yerushalayim. Uh, But it's a time of redemption. At the same time, as we've talked about in the last few weeks, there's certainly a tremor in the force in Israel. There's a tension between the, you know, secular Ashkenazi elite in Israel uh, and the government that is represents, we talked about it last week, that represents the Sephardim, the Haridim, the ultra Orthodox, the Sephardic, the the settlers, and the traditional. There's a tension right now. And the focal point of the tension uh, is the judicial reform and specifically the override clause and other aspects of how how, uh, the judges are appointed. One of the people that I think really understands these issues well uh, is a friend and uh, uh, a colleague and somebody that a lot of people in in our world respect, uh, especially folks, sadly, who face divorces, uh, uh, our friend uh, Tehila Gimpel, advocate Tehila Gimpel, is one of the people that people turn to, and I've heard many times how she's helped them really uh, move their life forward in a good way and, you know, for the benefit of the couple and the children. And she's also been going around speaking a little bit from place to place, uh, explaining the judicial reform, and, of course, uh, has is part of the fellowship program of the Land of Israel Network. So, Tehila Gimpel, thank you so much for uh, joining us today.
3: Hey, Shai. thanks for having me.
0: Okay, so Bekitzara, we're, we're, uh, we're doing this in short. Um, there's a few issues that, uh, th- that judicial reform is being reformed. But before we get to the actual physical stuff of, of the reforms, do you think that the tensions in Israel are really about the mechanics of judicial reform, or is there something deeper going on here?
3: No, I don't think it's about the mechanics of judicial reform. But I also want to take issue with sort of how you presented it in the beginning. I don't think it's just a struggle between Ashkenazim and Sfardim. There's It's easy to put it in that framework, but I think that that's, in the end of the day, a divisive way of looking at it. It's a, a struggle between the people who, for many different reasons, and perhaps some of them could be of a certain you know background or a, you know, a certain socioeconomic status, but I think it's a struggle between people who are close to the pot, close to the power um, you know, bases and want to maintain that and other people who are not feeling that their rights are being protected, that their voices are being heard. And so you have a struggle between those who want things to stay the same because they're comfortable for them and good for them and people who are saying, I can't live with this anymore. And so the mechanics of it in the end of the day, you know, the devil is in the details and the mechanics are important. But if you understand, you know, sort of where things are coming from, then you can see why the changes. You know, are are being suggested, or you know, being opposed um, from from kind of you know that understanding. Okay, um, so so
0: right, so uh, in, but in other words, what you're talking about is elites versus non-elites, and I think that that's what we talked about last week a lot. I mean, you know, closer to the power and wanting to maintain a certain way. Yes, also a certain ideological framework of how they want to see the country. Uh, I made a case last week that maybe we can see the country have. Uh, be a bipolar state, with, which we have both of these kind of, uh, you know, elites uh, operating and somehow loving and respecting one another. But anyway, we're not going to get into that. Now, the the, the the specifics that I have seen that have uh, galvanized the, the battlefront and have drawn the lines is this issue of judicial reform. So let's talk about, uh, you know, why that is. I mean, on a simple level, it's because the court is the last bastion of those elites. But there is mechanics behind the argument. Let's talk about the mechanics a little bit. What is really being fought over?
3: Okay, so you can kind of break down the reform that's being suggested into four major parts. The first one having to do with judicial review. When can the court um, decide that a parliamentary, uh, you know, a law that was passed by the Israeli parliament, by the Knesset, can be overturned? The second change that you have is the question of how do the legal advisors in Israel advise the government? Every governmental office has legal advisors and then the question is, is what is the level of control that they have over governmental decisions? The third question that's being discussed in the judicial reform is how are judges chosen? Um, there right now is a committee that's sort of an unusual, uh, you know, s- unusual in the sort of uh, compared to the rest of the world. You have a way uh, that judges are uh, elected, and that's also up for question. And the thir- and the fourth major, um, the fourth major question is what's called the override clause. Um, when can the Knesset override a judicial decision to overturn a law? You also have you know a few other small things, but I would say those are the four massive kind of issues that are being discussed.
0: Okay let's break them down quick uh, to try to understand uh, the the lines.
3: Okay, so let's start with judicial review. Israel is kind of a funny country, uh, as you guys know. Israel was supposed to have a constitution. Um, In the Declaration of Israel's Independence, uh, Israel declared independence in May of 1948. They wrote in the Declaration of Independence, by October we're going to have a constitution. But it's like there were a lot of people who didn't really think that that was a great idea. A lot of people didn't have motivation to do that because religious people said wait a minute we have the Torah the Torah is our constitution we don't need the constitution and you had all these uh, you know uh, different groups saying uh, why do we really need a constitution Are we? is it going to be more socialist is it going to be more capitalist let's just kind of kick the can down the road and you eventually got to what was called the Harari decision, which was the decision to not write a constitution, but to rather uh, prepare the constitution over the coming uh, years and decades in what would be called chapters written as what was called basic laws. Um, Now the basic laws in the beginning were just constitutional in the classic sense of how the government is going to work. Throughout the decades, they created a a basic law of the Knesset, basic law of the court, basic law of the government, just explaining when are there going to be elections and all the technical things. In 1992, they passed two more Basic Laws and for the first time they used the Basic Laws to discuss human rights. The Basic Laws were the Basic Law of Freedom of Occupation, which allowed people to work in whatever, you know, you said you couldn't have any occupation that you wish, and the Basic Law of Human Dignity, which said that basically all people have the right to human dignity, the right to life, not not to resist, you know, bodily harm, uh, seizure of property, and such. They were very cautious in how they worded this law because no, no one really wanted to put in certain things because those were hot potatoes. Those were hot button issues. For example, the ultra orthodox did not want to put in uh, freedom from religion or equality because they were nervous that such uh, wordings would then be turned against them and say, "Well, wait a minute, you know, now uh, you can't, you know, separate men and women at the Kotel and and such concerns. And so they passed the law in a very slim kind of way. What happened in 1995 was the Mizrahi case, where the Supreme Court, in a decision of two against one, in something that didn't really have to do with rights at all, uh, they did this shortly after the assassination of Rabin so that nobody uh, would notice. Uh, And it was done specifically because it was a case that had been sitting on their desk for over a year. Uh, Right after the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, when that was in the news, they let out uh, a court ruling that that said we have now, through these basic laws of human dignity and law of freedom of occupation, we now are able to overturn any law that doesn't sit with these. Now, when the Knesset passed these laws, they didn't have any idea. Hardly anybody showed up for the vote. Not everybody knows that. Hardly anybody even showed up for the vote. Certainly, people did not realize that they were passing the Constitution. But the Mizrahi ruling said that this is the new Constitution for Israel, and therefore, anything that we see as not fitting with human dignity, can be uh, any law can be canceled. Now, by the
0: Supreme Court, the Supreme a law Court. that is passed by the legislature, the Knesset,
3: by the Knesset can be canceled by the Supreme Court based on these uh, laws. The law, the people who passed the law, did not know that that would happen, and they didn't intend for that to happen. And, and we know that because they just didn't show up even for the vote. It was not considered a serious, important law. What happened further was they said human dignity needs to be reinterpreted, and they said human dignity actually includes such thing as such 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 uh, uh, rights as freedom of religion, freedom from religion. Um, Uh, the right to, uh, 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 the right to equality um, which, which then they interpreted also very broadly and the Knesset did not know that they were, the Knesset did not know that you can see actually in the protocols of the Knesset that some people wanted the law to include the term equality and you know the term freedom of religion and It was specifically rejected, purposely taken out of the draft of the law, and then the Supreme Court interpreted it back into the law. And so then we had this sort of perfect storm where they uh, gave themselves, um, where the Supreme Court took for itself the right to cancel laws, but then also reinterpreted the laws such that they would be very, very broad. And then they have from that a broad authority uh, to override anything passed by the Knesset, so that's on un- judicial review. That's that's the idea of the reform now is to limit that power to say that the Supreme Court can only uh, cancel laws in an, a very very broad forum. Meaning, right now, two against one judges in a you know a form of three judges could theoretically cancel a law. Usually, they are they they you know have more judges, but they could theoretically do that, and so the idea is that it would have to be a special majority, not a slim majority, a large majority within a full panel of Supreme Court judges in order to cancel a law of the Knesset. That's on judicial review.
0: I mean, I mean there's something shocking about what you just said. It's very shocking because what you're basically saying is that the Supreme Court mandated for itself powers to overturn laws of the Knesset, powers that they didn't have beforehand on grounds that they that the that the people never voted on. So basically that is that's the ultimate super legislature.
3: Yeah, so they made themselves a super legislature. Up until then they had taken for themselves very the court had been very conservative up until then and taken for themselves power to to oversee governmental activities. For example, if the Ministry of Interior made a decision that they felt was uh, you know uh, in conflict with human rights, then they would oversee that, but they had never taken for themselves the authority to to override actual Laws made by the knesset they said that 's not our that 's sort of not our business. We just need to oversee the government to make sure the government you know if the, you know, the police or you know the, the the military are maintaining human rights, but they didn 't actually think that they could override the Knesset. And then what Aaron Barak and and, and uh, what Barak and Shamgar, uh, the judges, justices Barak and Shamgar said against the dissenting opinion of, Misha, of Judge Michel Cheshin, who said, they said by giving, the, the purpose of these basic laws was to protect human rights. You can't really protect these human rights unless we're able to have oversight of the Knesset to do this. So they, they, they said that's the only way to reasonably interpret this. But what what Cheshin, who was also in the Supreme Court, along with them in this case, said, he said, you can't make a constitution through the back door. A constitution needs to be the, it's not just a law, it's like the ultimate law. It's the law that rules other laws. You can't do that without the people's consent, without people knowing that they're doing it. It has to be intentional at the very least. Forget about broad consensus. It has to at least be understood by the people as such. He said, you can't do this through the back door. But his opinion was was not accepted and, and the um, and the opinions of Barack and Shamgar were accepted. And that's a situation that we have now. People often say, well, the Supreme Court hasn't canceled that many laws. I think they canceled maybe 22 laws in the, you know, all, nearly 30 years, which is not seemingly that much. But what people fail to understand is that by taking that power, what it did is have a cooling effect on all legislation. Because what happens is that Every time somebody wants to pass a law, the first thing that they have to ask is this is going to get knocked down by the Supreme Court. And then so many laws don't even... Laws that could potentially be important and might not even be in conflict with human rights, but they are afraid that they might be interpreted as such. Who wants to go through all the headache of legislating something if then you're just going to have it knocked down in the Supreme Court? So it has a cooling effect that makes people just... You know, that makes our leaders and our our politicians afraid of even bringing their ideas to the table because they're not going to pass, which brings us to the second element of the reform, which is having to do... With the legal advisors, every every office in government has a legal advisor, and there's also the attorney general, who is the legal advisor to the government. Now, it's been ruled in Israel over time they, they've get, they've been given essentially more and more power. Although they're unelected, it's been ruled that their opinions are actually binding to the politicians. So, for example, you are the minister of education, and you would like to change. I don't know, let's say like a progressive policy in the schools that has to do with, you know, uh, uh, indoctrinating kids about, you know, some uh, progressive agenda, let's call it. I'm saying progressive, like, you know, quote-unquote progressive agenda. You want to change that, but then your legal advisor is not really your advisor. They're sort of your boss because they can say to you, well, I don't think that's going to pass in Bagats. I don't think that's going to pass in the Supreme Court. And then you're actually bound to their opinion, and you're not able to hire your own counsel that would defend you. So your, your legal advisor basically says to you, if this goes to the Supreme Court, I'm not going to defend this legislator. I'm not going to defend this policy. And then our leaders are very limited in the policies that they can take because they are actually required to listen to these advisors, but these advisors might have very personal and politically driven opinions. And they're not elected, and they have accountability to no one. And so we're in a very anomalous situation. And you can see the anomaly uh, most dramatically in the case of our Prime Minister Bibi. Imagine that in Israel, the advisor to the government, the, the attorney general, is also the chief prosecutor. That's a very strange thing. Imagine that in the morning, the chief prosecutor is prosecuting Netanyahu in court, and in the afternoon, he's Netanyahu's lawyer who has to advise him on everything he's doing. So if, if the government wants to, you know, bring a policy um, uh, up for discussion, the advisor advising them is the same prosecutor, pros- potentially prosecuting them. It's a very anomalous, very strange, uh, very strange kind of situation. And we're facing that right now, where even our attorney general said that Netanyahu is not allowed to even take part in the discussions regarding legal reform because he has a conflict of interest as a person being prosecuted in the legal system. Now, that's... You know how can you know that? How can I'm a lawyer? I wish that my clients were bound to my opinion, but I I certainly would never think that they would be because, of course, they have freedom. They take my advice and they can hear it and they can follow it or not follow it. So the idea of the reform is that the legal advisors would be legal advisors and not have their opinions be legal, you know these unelected um, unelected advisors have their opinions be legally binding to our leaders. Next. Next, number three. How are judges elected? The situation right now that, that the traditional situation has been that there are nine members of the judicial uh, uh, selection committee. The judicial selection committee is made of three Supreme Court judges. <clears throat> and you have two, you have two um, members of the bar, representatives of the bar association, and then you have so that's five, and then you have four. Uh, 4 let's say politicians, one is the minister of uh, minister of justice, and then you have you have members of, uh, represent another representative from the government, and, and then you have somebody from you know from the coalition and from the opposition. So you have four politicians and five let's say you know uh, people from judicial positions, three judges and two bar members. Now, what happened traditionally was that the judges and the lawyers, for obvious reasons, often would vote as a block and so you'd have a situation where the court essentially replicates itself because the judges consistently choose other judges that have similar opinions to their own particularly on the matter of judicial review and the broad and the broad authority that the court has taken for itself to do this judicial review so for example, you had the late Professor Ruth Gavison, who was my professor and I worked with uh, closely. I had the merit of working with closely. Who, although she was all of the things that you described in the beginning, you know, an Ashkenazic, secular, uh, you know, elite, powerful person, but she did not agree with this kind of with the approach to judicial review. She agreed with Justice Cheshin and not with Barak and Shamgar on the issue of judicial review. They, although nobody could you know, argue that she wasn't worthy to be a Supreme Court judge, she was, n- she was consistently not allowed to be appointed because the three judges and the two uh, members of the bar would consistently vote against her for this reason that she did not support the broad authority taken by the court to overturn Knesset laws. So the idea is to change the committee such that the people... You know, me and you, just regular people, we would have some ability to influence who our judges are going to be. Because in the end of the day, most decisions that judges make that are, you know, relating to matters of human rights, they're judgment calls that are based on our values. And so many, many people like me and you and like other, you know, members of society look at the court and they don't really see themselves. They don't see people there that hold any values that they hold dear and then when it comes to questions of co- competing values, well which values should, you know, be chosen, it's very very hard to have a court that doesn't seem to represent us. So the idea is to change the committee such that it would have more representation for the people and, uh, and not taking away the representation of the judiciary but but, but limiting it.
0: Okay, and what is the proposal?
3: So the proposal, well, the proposal is changing all the time. The proposal is not, I I don't know if if the proposal is very realistic. The proposal is to have a majority for, um, for, the government um, representatives and to on, have
0: on, on the election committee on, on this, the on this on this election, election
3: committee, committee. Yeah. to get rid of the, the, the well one of the, the things that is being suggested is to take out the bar association the bar association it's been you know suggested does not need to you know be of influence here if there's if it's a matter of expertise on you know the person's legal expertise it's enough to have it's enough to have judges and to have and to increase the members of the, of the coalition that would be on the group and it's also been suggested to have perhaps to other public figures, maybe selected by the president, they've been floating about, you know, a bunch of different ideas. Have the committee be, um, you know, 11 people. The, the idea, but the, the the details of, you know, if it's through, you know, public representatives chosen by the president, you know, the, 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 there's a lot of different permutations that you can come up with. But the idea, fundamentally, between you know that that of all the ideas that are being floated, is that you need to have. The ability for the majority of people to be able to influence the selection of judges, which has not happened in all of the years of Israel's existence, the majority of the nation has not been able to actually have any concrete influence on who the judges will be in any of the courts, and particularly of interest in the Supreme Court.
0: Okay, are we going into the last one, right? And now
3: the last one is the override clause. The override clause has a precedent; it exists in the law of, uh, in the basic law of freedom of occupation, which led to the idea that perhaps if the court is overturning laws, that the Knesset could overturn the overturning of a law in this override clause, which would be temporary and under very you know limited conditions, that with 61 members of Knesset could overturn a ruling of the court that overturned a law. Uh, listen, it, that's, uh, in my opinion, you know, it's it's not ideal. You don't want you don't you don't ideally want a situation where, if uh, if 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 we've already agreed that the court should be overseeing human rights, if we're agreeing to that, you know, concept that the court is there to make sure that all other branches of government maintain human rights, you don't necessarily want a situation where 61 members of Knesset can just, you know, overturn that on a simple vote. On the other hand, you know, people feel like they've been pushed into the corner where the court has taken so many uh, liberties that they feel like the pendulum needs to swing all the way to the other side. So, you know, it, it's there's, there's an argument to be made that desperate times call for desperate measures and that the only way to pass, and you know, there's also the idea that that Many people are afraid that with all these reforms, with the, all of the authority that the court has taken, perhaps the court would overturn the reforms themselves. And so you kind of need, I look at the override clause as the gun on the table saying, let us pass these reforms or we're also going to pass this reform as well. Like I'm, I'm sort of looking at it as there's, there's, there's a lot of room for negotiation here and that the override clause is the kind of pressure being used to allow the other important reforms to pass.
0: Okay, a lot of stuff. Um, just finally, um, one of the things that shocks me about Israel's Supreme Court is that it basically doesn't have any requirements of standing like we have in America, where like, it 's like from lower courts that have to go through two court systems, and then you know af- after the Court of Appeals is really the final court, unless unless it 's a constitutional question, unless uh, the Supreme Court grants cert, certiari. And 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 it accepts that case. Here, it's like it looks like the court is basically can pick any issue that it wants to pick. It doesn't even have a case or controversy. Like there's some kind of problem. It just decides on issues even before there's even a, a case or an issue. It just kind of it's basically like some kind of I, how do I explain it? Super legislature is not enough of a word. It's like it's some, some kind of like ultimate supreme council where it just kind of like decides what they like and what they don't like and changes the country so these these things the smoking the gun on the table that you're saying it seems like it, it is a situation of trying to bring it back towards a healthy place um of of a a a, a, a legislated limitation on what the court can and cannot do
3: yes <laughs> I haven't actually heard a lot of people talking. The, 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 the stand, issue of standing is an interesting one. It was chiseled away at, even before these basic laws, it was chiseled away at little by little over many, many decades. And I haven't actually heard a lot of people talking about that, but that is also, uh, that is also a very interesting and anomalous thing that Israel has, that even people who don't have any particular conflict, we experience that on our very own farm, that people, uh, you know, all sorts of NGOs funded by Europe getting involved in our issues, even though they were not, Hurt by us in any way, but coming to you know sort of sue us in the Supreme Court is if they had some sort of conflict with us that didn't exist. And so you're right that that is a big deal. I haven't actually heard of being talked spoken about very much in in the existing reform, although I imagine it is also. I imagine that that's, that's on deck for for being dealt with. Um, something that I just one kind of last thing I would want to say is that I, I hear from a lot of people and people that are really honestly like worried, and people saying I'm really worried that there won't be my human rights my civil rights will not be protected because all i have is the court and what if the majority decides to tyrannize me what if i decide to be tyrannized you know what if, if i decide what if the what if the the government decides to vote that all people with mustaches you know can't drive cars anymore people say this to me you know and they say they're really actually concerned and i don't think that they're lying i think that they really are concerned but they're being kind of almost tricked into being concerned in the sense that that they're, they're being convinced that there's these, this great protection of civil rights and that this reform is coming to limit judicial power such that their rights now will be less protected. I say there's, there's a really, really easy way to check this kind of motivation. It's true that our Supreme Court has come out in defense of human rights in a few cases, I'm not saying that it hasn't and that's very, and, and I think that that's important and, and protecting human rights is important. But what's important also to remember is that the day-to-day rights of people in Israel have not been properly protected by the Supreme Court. It's true that periodically you'll hear a big case, you know, especially when it comes to uh, uh, foreign workers or in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But in the day-to-day life of regular, simple people The lower stratas of society, the people that don't have a lot of money, the people that don't have a lot of education, simple people who have altercations, let's say, with law enforcement, do not have a lot of laws. People in Israel, are uh, people outside of Israel, uh, sorry, they don't have a lot of protections. And what people don't often realize is that at every junction where the Supreme Court, at every sort of watershed case where the Supreme Court could have really come out to protect the rights of everyday people in a dramatic way. They didn't do it, and they sided with the government, and they sided with the governmental bodies that are really most dangerous to human rights. People often don't know, for example, that evidence that's obtained illegally, and this for our American listeners will probably sound absolutely shocking, that evidence that's obtained, for example, in an illegal search is admissible in court in Israel. That Torture. Torture. Things, you know, evidence obtained through torture is admissible, that people don't have the right to remain silent in Israel, things that for people outside of Israel might look trivial. Every time these cases have come to the Supreme Court, they haven't been protected. And you can look and know, you, it's very easy to know what a conflict is about when you look at who is on which side. Recently, it came out. I think just a couple of days ago, that the Shin Bet, Israel's you know, uh, a secu- what, how would you translate FBI. that? Israel's F- you know, equivalent to the FBI, the military, all all of our security bodies came out against the reform. Which is interesting because if the reform, if the Supreme Court is there to protect human rights, who are the greatest threats to human rights if not the people with the guns, if not the people with the power, if not the people who can arrest you, who can go into your house, who can seize your things, who can hurt you physically? Those are the guys that are supposed to be afraid of the court. The guys who might be infringing human rights are the ones who are supposed to be afraid of the court and want the court to be weaker. On the other hand the people who are mostly out fighting for this reform look at who's fighting for the reform it's the poorest in society it's the minorities in society so if the supreme court has such a great record of protecting human rights and we just have to make sure that nothing changes so that we can keep having all of our protections you would wonder why is the government who's supposed to be overseen by the court why is the why are these governmental bodies what we would call the the deep state, the unelected officials who have so much power over our day to day lives, why are they so much wanting to protect the court? Whereas these minorities who are allegedly being protected and making sure that and we're being, make, you know, being, are, that are being, are being um, looked after by the court are all out saying we don't feel protected by the court. And I would note that even Israeli Arabs, you don't see a lot of them out protesting, although the court has seemingly been protective of Arab rights and the day to day you know, on the day-to-day level of just regular cops and robbers, they do not feel like they've gotten a fair shake. From the Israeli court system, and so this idea that if we change the court system around, somehow these fantastic protections of human rights are going to disappear. I think it's his- I think it's hysteria. There's 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 an, an effort to kind of get people all nervous and riled up. But you have to look at it and realize a lot of these reforms, although some of them can be tweaked and can be improved, the reforms are coming from a place of people saying we don't feel protected. We want to see people who have some kind of values in common with us on the court that is meant. To oversee government, to be a check, to be you know, to, to provide checks and balances to the legislation and to the you know into the governmental bodies, and so, you know, that's an important thing when you hear this hysteria to understand that it's that it's that it's misplaced. Just by looking at who are the sides in this conflict,
0: Tehila Gimpel, uh, advocate Tehila Gimpel, uh, can be heard uh, every week on the Fellowship of the Land of Israel Network, and she is a uh, often used by uh, sadly by friends. Uh, but to make their life a little happier in divorce cases and others. Thank you very much for joining us today and explaining these things. And uh, I'm looking forward to everybody's comments. I think there's going to be a lot of questions for you. Write me an email to Yishai, to Hila Kimpel. thanks again. Thanks for having me. All right, folks. Yishai Fleischer here in beautiful, remote Yerushalayim. I'm overlooking the remote forest and looking at the entrance of the city. And this is a beautiful suburban neighborhood in Jerusalem. Uh, Houses... Not just apartments, houses, forest, but you can really see the beautiful big city. Actually, I can also see not so far away from here where my father is buried on Haram and Uchot. Uh, And I'm here. I was here for Shabbat, and I'm still here Saturday night for a wonderful bar mitzvah uh, of a young man named Aaron David Altshuler. So Mazal Tov to him. And uh, his grandfather, Rabbi Kenny Cohen, who was a rabbi for many years in Los Angeles, uh, California, made Aliyah uh... and has been a teacher here and a writer uh... for a lot of years gave a wonderful first thing he prepared the bar mitzvah boy uh, for his Torah reading, which was immaculate and impeccable uh, and really, really just good, good stuff. And you could feel that he had long training from a grandparent. That is, the, that is really mesora. Friends, I, I always talk to you guys uh, about Rabbi Tendler, my beloved Rebbe, uh, and I always just say about him that he didn't teach Torah, he taught mesora. He didn't just teach the, the truth of Torah, but rather the way it's passed down throughout gen- the generations. Rabbi Kenny Cohen was able to pass it down wonderfully to his grandson. Rabbi. Cohen, I call him Rabbi Kenny, also gave a great uh, talk that I thought was very worth it to, uh, for everybody to hear. It's short and tight and compact, but a piece of information that is very important for everybody to understand. So, Rabbi Kenny, first thing, Mazaltov.
4: Thank you very much.
0: That was really great. Did you enjoy that? Was that, was that special for that you? That's your first grandson?
4: First grandson, Bar Mitzvah, yeah. He did a great job. It was a lot of work, but thank God he came out very, very well.
0: How long have you been teaching him?
4: Uh, well, I actually started teaching him when he was five years old, but Bar Mitzvah started a little over a year ago to make it a little gradual, not put too much pressure on him. So, thank God, it came out nice. You stood next to him, and you, you barely even corrected him. It was great. Correct uh, a few times, you know, to feed him with a note, but it was very, very good. I was very pleased. Thank God.
0: And it's not an easy parasha because it's not a Torah. It's not a story. Torah portion. It's technical. It's mechanical. There's a lot of stuff. We're talking about truma. We're talking about uh, you know how the Mishkan is constructed and all the vessels. And there's uh,
4: words. There's words that aren't used often in the Torah. o and things like that. There are little, a few tongue twisters in the bunch. So uh, thank God he did well with that.
0: I I I want to tell you that I was a stickle jealous uh, because, but uh, bli type of jealous because I was just like my grandparents. We're not able to give that stuff over to me. My parents were not able to give that stuff over to me. Uh, and so, you know, and, and also my ability to give it over to my kids is hampered by that it's, uh, somewhat as well. But, I mean, we all, Baruch Hashem, have our life trajectory, but it's let's put it this way. Let's put it the correct way. It was beautiful to see. It was beautiful to see.
4: I was in um, New Jersey a few months ago waiting to uh, catch a plane, and I'm sitting in the lobby about to board the plane, and, and Aaron David's younger brother, Eliel, calls me up, and he said, can you help me with my in Navi in Shmuel and prophets so I was sitting there and I tried to get the text what I could off my phone and, and I'm helping him and I didn't realize anyone was paying attention to me so some woman came up to me and she said what are you doing? Are you are you praying or what are you doing? I said no. I'm helping my grandson with his homework. That was pretty cool. That's very right. cool.
0: That's right. Baruch Hashem for that, and and uh, may may we have the merit that this generation, this young generation, will be able to give that to their grandchildren. You know, we are post Holocaust, post two thousand years of exile, post all the uh, persecutions of the exile, to be able to have that comfort and that normalcy, and then also to be able to appreciate it. Wow, that's a big thing. Now, you uh, said a dvar Torah that I asked you on Shabbat that I was like, "Ooh, that would be important for my show." So let's let's get to it. This is about uh, uh, basically uh, about the flow of history as understood by by Judaism and by the rabbis.
4: Right. So I I came up with a, a very quick method of showing how the year fifty seven eighty three is accurate just by using the Talmud.
0: That's the that's the year of our time.
4: Right, and. Uh, and, and uh, it's, it's based on the Talmud and based on the, on the Torah itself. So the reason why I brought it up today is because in the Torah reading today, in King 6, verse 1, it says, and it came to pass at the end of 480 years that the temple was completed, 480 years from the exodus from Egypt. And I said that that number 480 is an extremely important number because it connects everything. It's the missing number to connect all of our all, all of our history. And so, just to do a very quick summary of it, I started with the year 1948, because if you do the addition of the generations mentioned in the Torah, just add it up, all the begotting, so-and-so begot, so-and-so and so, from Abraham, from Adam to Noah, and from Noah to Abraham, 20 generations, add it all up, and Abraham was born in the year 1948
0: on the jewish on the jewish count from not creation. 1940
4: right from creation yes and so so then if you add 100 years cuz the torah says that he was 100 years old when yitzhak was born so that gives us 2048 and then the torah says it came to pass at the end of 400 years which is supposed to be from the birth of yitzhak the jews left egypt so that's 2448 so people are supposed to know that that year as well 2448 years after creation, the Jewish people left Egypt. And this is where the number 480 from today's Haftorah is so significant because you need to add a, num- a, a number of numbers. So the 48 is less known than all the other numbers. But then that first temple of Shlomo lasted 410 years. And you have to add all these numbers that I'm going to tell you So uh, to the number 2448. So you add the 480 plus 410 because 410 was the Number of years the first temple lasted, plus the prophecy of Jeremiah, which was known 70 years between the first and second temple, and then the second temple would be built, and the second temple lasted 420 years. So you add up from 2448, 480 plus 410 plus 70 plus 420, you get 3828. 3828 corresponds to the year 68 or 70 of the common era of when the second temple was destroyed. And then you take the current date, 2023, and subtract 68 or 70, you get around uh, 1,953 years or so. And that's how many years it's been since the temple was destroyed. And actually, there are synagogues in Israel on Tisha B'Av that will say, and today is 1,953 years since our temple was destroyed. So you add 1953 to 3828, it's actually, I think it's 1955, um, then you get the current year, fifty-seven, fifty-seven, eighty-three, which is pretty cool. How all these—you only need, don't need so many numbers—but then it proves that our dating today is accurate. That was basically the Dvar Torah.
0: I love it. I love it, and it's—it's uh, it's like it's important stuff. It's not stuff that I usually touch. When you when you said nineteen fifty-three, one thousand nine hundred fifty-three years since the Temple, that triggered something in me. You know, it was like it's been. One thousand nine hundred and fifty-three years since the temple was really around, since it's been destroyed, and we are definitely living in the era. We think we're living in the era of the third temple, the era of the third temple. And it just was like I don't know. Somehow the math and all that, it all all those different parts of Jewish history added up, and to realize where we are today. And then, and then I got to tell you, Rabbi Kenny, that to think about the dross, the garbage, the fraud, the lies, the hate against the Jews. And to realize how ancient we are That's right. and how what an ancient promise we have and what an, what an incredible time we have today and all the and all the garbage and lies that you see in the news about about the greatness of our time and the, the reduction of it to something you know you know something so 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 um, so what what's the word I'm looking for so low and, 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 and broken instead of what it really is. And just somehow your, your numbers put it together for me.
4: Well, the, the, the consolation to the whole thing is, is that the Gomorrah and Sota describes times like this, meaning that there'll be a period where there's a lack of morality. There'll be a period where there will be disrespect. It says, Chill sons will not respect their fathers and daughters, their mothers, et And very much like this time. So if there's any consolation in seeing the chaos of the world, then, uh, the, uh, the, the consolation is that these are signs that the redemption is near. So it, even within the darkness, we could see the light. So that's what I would say.
0: All right, so amen, and thank you very much. And may your uh, son, grandson grow up uh, strong and healthy uh, in, the, in the Jewish land, in the Jewish state, uh, and in the time of the Beit HaMikdash, and may he continue to, to bring it down through the generations. Thank you very much, Rabbi Kenny Cohen.
4: Uh, my pleasure. i just say one last thing. Sure. I've said this to my students for years, and they told me I'm right. And so that parents have an obligation to study Torah. If you don't, by the time your kid is in second grade, you're not going to be able to help them with their homework in school. And that's going to be embarrassing. And so many people have come back to me over the years and said how true that is. So thankfully, I'm able to try to fill in as where I can with my own uh, grandchildren. But study Torah, that's also very critical.
0: All right, folks, we're back here. Isha and Malka on the road, Route 60. Heading to a bar mitzvah in Shiloh, going to our old haunts in Samaria. Maka loves this region of the land, right? Maka, you love this area, right? Absolutely. It's so beautiful. It's very spiritual also. It is very spiritual. It's very historic. I hope you enjoy the show. I want to thank all the good folks that made the show happen, uh, including all of our guests, Tehila Gimpel, Rabbi Kenny Cohen, Ben Bresky, And I also want to thank the crew that made the show happen, Ben Bresky once again. Ben, Tabitha, Lewin We're Live, Yocheved, and Moshe for getting that email out to the world. Thank you guys so much for all that you do. You're beautiful. And thank you to all our listeners and fans and supporters. There's a lot of ways to support this show. One way is by just giving it a high star rating. Uh, another way is to write a little comment like, Yay, you guys are so great. Uh, uh, and and you're a blessing of God to me in my life. That's, a good, that's basically the text I'd like you to write. Uh, another way to do it is, of course, through supporting the show. A great way to do it is buymeacoffee.com forward slash Yishai. Just a cup of coffee makes all the difference in the world. And thank you to Krista for all your great support and all the other friends uh, that are on uh, buymeacoffee.com. Uh, or you can go to the Yishai Fleischer uh, webpage, com. All of our shows are archived there. Uh, and also support for our bigger projects, which we're doing a lot of stuff all around the land of Israel. Uh, that's it, Malka Fleischer. Thank you very much and Mazaltov Tov today uh, for this beautiful um, Bar Mitzvah door we're going to. And B'srat Hashem, we'll see better times here in the land of Israel that we're working on.
1: Yes, Purim Sameach, everybody. It should be really a time of great joy and redemption and all the things that look impossible should turn out into the best.
0: Amen. Actually, you reminded me before we sign off just to say one last thought about Purim. Uh, people don't usually think of it this way, but Purim is actually the last holiday of the year. If Pesach is the first holiday of the year, the beginning of the year, then the one that seals the whole thing is Purim. And so sometimes I really think to myself, uh, it's something not so common in Jewish thinking, but I think to myself Purim is the end of the year. And therefore we have to give it all. This is like this is this is the real Simchas Torah. And in many ways it parallels Simchas Torah. You know that, right? Because it is the receiving of the Torah, because the Jews accepted the Torah a second time, Ki Mu because it's really the end of the year, because it's the end of, the, of of that cycle. And so we have to really treat it like a Simchas Torah. We have to go really all out. And it is clear to me that this is also a holiday for non-Jews, uh, for those who accepted the Jewish way, accepted the Jewish story, because it says in the Megillat in Esther. that that the non-Jews accepted God upon themselves when they saw the strength of the Jews. And those non-Jews who love the strength of Israel, listen to me carefully, those non-Jews who love the strength of Israel, love God's strength in this world, and there's so many of them, part of what we call the International Torah Congregation here, and I want to bless you with a happy Purim and may you be continue to feel strong don't be afraid of all the bad guys and all the crud that they're saying out there uh, we're living in amazing times times of revelation and the kind of revelation of Purim is when God's not fully revealed His name is not in the Megillah but His the whole Megillah is His name the whole Megillah is His name and there is great revelation in our time And and you, the folks that see Jewish strength and see God's hand in this world uh, are indeed people that are the receptors, the receivers of that revelation and its, and its broadcasters as well. Malcolm Fleischer, thank you so much for being with me. Lots of love to you from the land of Israel and from Route 60.
1: Sameach.